Today's episode of The Full 60 is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn, or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to full60.robinhood.com. To get that free stock, that's full60.robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice, I promise, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply, so visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual, annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. For several months now, we have been trying to get Mike Gillis on this podcast because I'd read somewhere along the line that since leaving the Vancouver Canucks organization, he has really been trying to learn and round out everything that comes with running a professional franchise. And that kind of self-improvement and examination fascinates me, as you know, if you listen to this podcast. And so I wanted to have him on this pod to talk about that. But not only that, those Vancouver Canucks teams, I think are time is going to be really kind to them. We're going to look back and be like, boy, those Sedin teams from like, whatever it would have been, like 2009 or 10, they would have those series against the Chicago Blackhawks to you know losing in seven games in 2011, Stanley Cup final. A couple of years after that, like that was a team they were, they would win a ton of games and they were confident and cocky and played a, a fun, exciting brand of hockey. And, and they just, you know, they were one win away from kind of hockey immortality. And, and that's how it goes sometimes. And, I wanted to talk to Mike about that and what you learned from going through that process. And, and he was great and really a lot of self-examination, um, a lot of honesty, a, a really good conversation. So let's jump right into it. The full 60 with former Vancouver Canucks GM, Mike Gillis. All right, let's dive in. So Mike, first and foremost, I want to, I want to jump in. Like, what, what are you up to right now? Let's, let's get that out of the way. Like, what are you, what's your focus on a day to day? In this moment uh well there's got a few projects on the go where i'm consulting with different groups about professional sports participation um how they can enter what makes sense uh what the financials look like um uh worked on four or five projects like that over the course of the past couple of years and um yeah, just trying to continue to learn and watch and and um, understand various aspects of uh, the sporting industry that interests me. Yeah, um, we've worked on a pilot for um, a storytelling segment around sports that are not as commonly known or followed throughout the world that. Um, uh, there's some real interest in, so yeah, just, just whatever, whatever, whatever I'm interested in that, um, is helpful to, to others. Um, and the more I can learn about it, that's what I've been up to. So it's interesting, like, uh, uh, you know, I read somewhere where you really, you're, you've been, you've been spending these last several years, just kind of rounding out and trying to expand your knowledge in, in terms of, professional sports and the best kind of way to optimize how a franchise is run. How, like, what does that look like when you, do you just find something that's interesting and just pull that thread or like from a practical learning and expanding your knowledge, what does that look like? Well, it's, I mean, it takes on all sorts of different uh, permutations and considerations depending on what you're, 
looking at, but like, for example, I spent time at Stanford University and looked at their persuasion labs and uh, virtual reality labs and uh, for the purpose of thinking about how you might apply those that thinking and process to decision-making with an NHL team or decision-making in a sports environment where <clears throat> it's highly emotional and uh, dynamic and um, sometimes you don't have the luxury of a lot of time in, um, in the decision-making process. So, you know, how, how you implement a process that you know will be effective and get a good result most of the time, as opposed to uh, no real process and operating, operating on emotion and, um, and maybe undue influence from outside sources that uh, are guiding your decision making process and you know how to avoid that. And, right. Um, I looked at virtual reality and how it might assist in the in the teaching and co- coaching methodology, not just for players but for your entire staff, and how um, how you can get them used to circumstances artificially that are going to come at them in real time. And, uh, you know, the, the more opportunity you have to prepare for those circumstances, the more likelihood, the better decisions you'll make. So that's interesting to me because I, I can imagine a world where virtual reality would help a player. So let's say, you know, I, I've seen those where, you know, you, you put the thing on and you can look around the ice and where every, everyone with a player tracking. What I maybe don't have a good grasp on is how it could help us like a staff outside of the player, like what, where could you see virtuality, virtual reality playing a part in kind of that preparation for people that who aren't on the ice? Well, you can, you can create scenarios now that are, that resemble real life and anything that improves your cognitive awareness and, and cognitive decision-making will be helpful when you face those circumstances that are real life. And historically, you know, it's, it's all been based on experience. Like, yeah. you know, someone who's gone through it and gone through it and gone through it and made multiple mistakes and, and perhaps have made good decisions, uh, have reflected back and said, wow, that was a good decision. What did we do to get there? How did we, what did we consider? Who was involved? Um, so there's a, there's a way now to begin to accelerate the experiential part of, of learning and growing uh, through technology. And um, you know, so it, it can involve anything like a trade deadline. You know, right. there's always lots and lots and lots of moving parts happening on trade deadline that, uh, you know, some are anticipated, some are not anticipated. And you can actually build a program that people can be sitting there and in virtual reality, operate a trade deadline scenario and, and then go back and review and say, okay, well, you know, we can't do this under any circumstances. We can't lead ourselves into this corner where we're not going to be able to get out of it. So let's put the stock apps in place to ensure we don't get there. And like any training tool, um, you know, you're trying to advance your, your experience without having put the years and years and time in to gain that experience, um, in real life. And there's, there's tons and tons of applications. That's fascinating to me because it's almost like I'll I'll use like a poker analogy where they say, you know, the, the, the people who kind of came up on the online world had seen so many hands because it happened fast and it was almost virtual reality versus, kind of traditional doing it in real life shuffling the cards do you like do you feel like that can replace experience then on some level i guess uh, enhance it won't to- it won't totally but if you have people that have experience it creates new opportunities for them to impart that experience to others who right. you know would have to spend a lot of time getting there and and oftentimes um People have to experience, have really bad experiences to learn from, and sometimes they don't learn from them. And this gives you an opportunity with, without, you know, without the dramatic repercussions of making a really poor decision, to go through processes so you learn how to how the best process and decision making works. And yeah, you know, like anything, there's 
the more experience you gain, you realize that there's certain steps that you need to take to make sound decisions consistently. And um, even when you look at high functioning organizations and their structure and their decision-making process, there's four or five steps that they have to take in order to make what they consider to be consistently good decisions for the benefit of everyone in the company. And right. in the dynamic world of hockey, it's very easy to either not know those principles or not have experience in, in those principles or to leave them aside when it gets really stressful and hot. And, and that's where I think, uh, leading companies around the world never put themselves in that position. So the training is constant. They're constantly maintaining um, the process of decision-making. And at the end of the day, they tend to make very good ones. So let's use, because it's coming up, let's use the trade deadline as, as kind of the world to examine. What kind of processes can you put in place? Because I've talked to GMs that, that are like, yeah, that trade came down with 15 minutes before the deadline. And, you know, we hadn't even thought. And I'm like, wow, that's a pretty big decision to make in a 15-minute window. So what kind of processes, like what examples, maybe four or five, three or four steps you put into place to make sure you're making a good decision in a tight time period like that? Well, the first thing is you would, <clears throat> you'd go into, you'd go into, into your initial session saying, okay, what ideas do we have? And okay. who's, what are you thinking about with your staff? And people will lay out different scenarios and different ideas. And then you need to debate those ideas really vigorously without any agenda. So that, okay they're com completely objective and where there's no personal feelings involved and they're ripped apart and they're advanced and they're thought of in different layers. And ultimately you come out of that with, with the comfort of knowing that you've attempted to consider every possible thing around these ideas that could affect them, disaffect them, whether they make sense there's consensus about um, the direction to go in. And then you, from that, you create your plan. And when you create your plan, your plan has the ability to be somewhat flexible, but pretty firm. Um, yeah. And then you go about executing that plan. And if something comes at you that is unconsidered outside of the plan, you can insert that, that uh, detail in very quickly and see whether it fits in this plan that you've, you've conceived that you think is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. You then are in a, in a much better position to make a quality decision in the context of your overall plan, which should be guiding your direction through not just the trade deadline, but through the next stages and into the summer and into the fall and, and be in the context of a much larger plan. So, it provides a foundation where you can now put inputs in that we'll see if they're in line with your vision of the plan. And if they're completely out of line with your vision of the plan, then you discard them, you eliminate right. them. If they, if they somehow fit in, you try and very quickly see how they fit in, what the impact is going to be, and whether that's something you should seriously be considering if it's something that fits perfectly with your plan, you execute. Mm -hmm. And um, and then after you do all that, you go back, you review every step of the process, and you say, okay, were we as good as we could have been here, here, and here? And when this happened, what happened to us? Yeah. Did motion takeover? Did our cognitive awareness and, and decision-making stay intact? Were we operating with our macro plan in mind? Did we get confused? Did we get distracted? Uh, did, did someone say something that would cause us to change our mind on certain things? And then at the end of that, you know whether your decision-making process is a good one, a bad one, or needs work. Mm. So do you have an example of, of that debriefing process that might have taken place when you were with the Canucks? Like, was there, where is it like, okay, maybe that wasn't the best path forward? you know, where, where did it go sideways? Um, well, we, we, uh, in our first year, um, 
there was this idea that the Sedins had to play with a right-handed shot because they had great success with Anson Carter. I don't okay. know if you remember that. But, yeah. <clears throat> so we went out and um, as part of our plan, we thought, okay, we're going to, we're going to try and find a reliable, uh, uh, well-sized right-handed shot who can finish might not be the fastest player in the world, but that's probably not necessary given their speed of play. And we put together all this criteria about um, about what we were looking for and for a couple of candidates. And as we got into free agency, we, um, we began to eliminate certain candidates or they were eliminated by other teams signing them. We had our macro plan. We had our cap plan. And one player who was at the top of our list kept coming back to us and coming back to us and coming back to us. And we had identified him as a, a really strong candidate. We had um, gone through all the analysis. We had our cap plan in place and there came a point in time where to sign this player would have disrupted our cap plan, which was critical to what we thought um we needed to do in order to build a championship team. If we, if we began to qualify our cap plan for any particular reason, we were going to pay for it somewhere else. So we, we were, we were very, very determined to maintain, um, a contract slotting strategy. And when it came down to this player, I had the whole, whole staff in a room and said, okay, here he is. This is what the cost is going to be. Um, what do you think? And we went around the room and the consensus was almost entirely, and this was an emotional one. We need this player. Yeah. We had thought, we thought that this was the ideal player for Daniel and Henrik to, you know, continue to improve and get to the levels that they eventually got to without this player. But we felt we were really compelled to think that this guy fit the profile we wanted except for the fact that he now exceeded our cap plan and mm-hmm. almost all the older guys said, go get the player, get the player, get the player. You have to get the player. And a couple of the others said, we get this player. We're not going to be able to do this, 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 and this. And the decision was ultimately mine. And I said, we're not getting this player. We have to figure out something else for Daniel and Henrik because we need to these other pieces if we're ever going to be successful. So we walked away from that player and it was an example where the decision-making wasn't perfect, but it was the beginning of how we process decision-making and the layers that we put on those decisions and ended up turning out great because Alex Burroughs emerged as a player that uh, could fulfill that role, and he was a great player in that role, and the Sedins became better players because of him. And maybe didn't fit the prototypical, I guess, uh, characteristics of how you did. Like, he's not Anson Carter, Alex Burroughs. No, but what, and this is my point, is that yeah. the media and the public, everyone felt that you needed a player that resembled Anson Carter. Right. Right. And what we found when we actually began working with the team and we began looking at complementary players and we began to bring some analytics into who should be playing with whom, we found that you didn't need Anson Carter. What you needed was a very different skill set. And you needed a puck retrieval guy. You needed a physical player. You need someone who was going to fight battles, fight for space, and have great, great stick skills. And Alex emerged as that player. And consequently, everything that people thought turned out to be not necessarily correct. Yeah. And we were lucky because we had, we had layered on these pieces of our decision-making process. And when one of them got violated, um, I made up my mind that we weren't going to allow that violation to happen because it would disaffect us other other places. And our process wasn't perfect. Um, it was beginning. Yeah. And we built off that to try and make it better. Who was the player? We're far enough removed. You can tell me who the uh, player you guys were looking at was. Michael Ryder. 
Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I, so you mentioned analytics at that point. So this would have been what? Gosh, 08? Oh, like I'm trying to get a time and place. Yeah. Um, well, we were, you know, we, we were pretty early out of the gate with a lot of stuff. So we made lots of mistakes. But we began to try and use a more scientific uh, methodology to see who should be playing with one another and not based on simply observation and this might work, um, yeah. but more in line with um, uh, what would actually complement particular players on the ice. Like what style of play, what did they bring to the table? How did they bring it consistently? And thinking about um, places like where the puck gets turned over, how many times it gets turned over there in a game, what happens once the puck gets turned over there, mm-hmm. who can create that, who can create that turnover for the other two players on that line, or, you know, how do you fit together a defensive pairing that, uh, that has the right puck moving skills, the right speed, but is defensively capable and reliable. And right we began to try and look at numbers in different quadrants around the rink, um, really trying to break down games into specifics as opposed to team play, which was left up to the coaches. And we began to come up with some pretty consistent ideas about how to form lines, how to, uh, how to deploy players at certain times, during the course of a game, how to put the percentages in our favor to score one more goal in the opposition, and yeah, um, worked out okay. So, I mean, you've always had a kind of a progressive mindset. I mean, for forever, and it's kind of alluded to maybe the traditional mindset in hockey. Like even July first, there's just hey, you got to spend money to get players. That's just how it's going to go, and and that's always been the mindset. When you look now and in, in your experience both in running the Canucks and also e- examining professional sports outside of hockey over the last several years, like how do you when you're talking about structuring now an organization, what do you think is the ideal makeup of a front office? So I think it's changed well, since ten years ago. Yeah, I thought a lot about that. I think that um <clears throat> again, you wanna you want to create an environment where you're making consistently better decisions in your competition and consistently the best decisions you can make. And the way I've begun thinking about organizational structure is to uh, look at different organizations around the world and how they've evolved and why they're set up in the manner that they are. And, you know, we used to do a lot of stuff with uh, U.S. military consultants because I always felt they were the best sports scientists on the planet. They, mm. you know, their their motivation was different. It was to keep people alive and keep people operating at the highest level for the longest period of time. But you know, when you when you begin to drill down on everything that is necessary to be uh, a SEAL team member or a special ops member. Um, you know, your ability to to digest information, make good decisions, make good decisions under pressure, mm-hmm. uh, be physically capable to survive under really adverse conditions. And, you know, they've taken science to a whole new level when it comes to trying to keep people alive, particularly in battlefield scenarios and trying to keep medical people operating at the highest level, helicopter pilots, it doesn't matter who it is. You, you're anticipating high, high stress levels and you need people who can continue to make decisions, continue to function in, um, under those conditions. So right. we looked at, I looked a lot at how the structure of those teams and organizations has shifted over the past uh, really four to five years in particular, but the trend has been over the last 10 years. And, and um, you know, my, my views on NHL front office structure would resemble those. Um, okay. They would all, they would all funnel into how you make really good decisions, but you know, there'd be a lot more autonomy 
the makeup would be very different. The structure would be very different. Um, you know, you would, you would eliminate groupthink as much as humanly possible because groupthink is a killer, in my opinion, when it comes to player analysis. Mm-hmm. And um, groupthink emerges from multiple sources, the media, uh, other, other people outside the organization, ownership, you know, what people have heard. And I think the elimination of groupthink would be at the forefront of the organizational structure. Um, but again, a lot more autonomy with the right people, probably less people, but really, uh, really high end thinkers who can, who can operate in a high functioning organization. And there's, there's not, you know, not everyone can do that. Um, right. You need to, you need to have a certain mindset and willingness to work with others on a, on a different level than just being friendly. Um, to really have a high-functioning organization. And uh, like I said earlier, it's not personal. Um, right. But there, there has to be vigorous debate about these really important decisions that that come up routinely in the world of professional sports. And if you don't have process, if you don't have structure, if you don't have um, post-decision analysis that's really uh, detailed, then you're really just operating on emotion. And I, I don't think the top organizations in the world do that. So a lot of these, a lot of things you're talking about as th- that you'd want to avoid, I think exists pretty strongly in hockey, right? Like, you know, group think, or even, even like friendliness, I would say, right? Like, I think, uh, you know, there, there tends to be, um, you know, people want tend to get along. There's clicks. There's whatever. How do you, as a leader in a hockey organiza- organization, make sure? I mean, you want these high end thinkers. You want them to say exactly what they're feeling without feeling like they're going to be ostracized by their colleagues. How do you create that environment? Well, their their true colleagues are the ones they work with internally. And, right. Um, you know, I just think it's it's. Um, insisting on a level of professionalism and a level of due diligence and, a, and also your obligation to train people and develop yeah. their talent so that they, um, you know, no one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes, but if you can begin to train people effectively in um, professional methodology, decision-making, their role, how vital their roles are, even though at times they may think that they're marginalized, but they're not. Um, and you get everyone participating at the highest level that they can participate at. Mm-hmm. And the top organizations, the ones that are sustainable, that is a daily process. That's not something that you go, okay, well, we're going to go off on a retreat and uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about this stuff. Right. It's, it's, it's built right into, into your daily routine. And, once everyone knows that that's the expectation, they're either going to comply or they're not. And mm-hmm. if they're not, um, it's probably not the right place for them. But if they are, they're going to use every tool that you can give them to grow and advance, become better, become more instrumental in the, in the decision-making process, and and feel really good about what they're doing. They're included. Um which I, I really believe in inclusion, um, hearing from everybody. Uh, I think it, it goes a long way to um, a sense of confidence and trust within the organization. So I think a lot a lot of these things you're saying, like you, you, you would need a lot of time, I would say, to A, to implement this kind of culture, B, to like a lot of the right decisions, you may not see a payoff for several years. I think a lot of the biggest mistakes that are made in hockey are because there's so much pressure to succeed in the short term. Um, and so when you look at the, how maybe a SEAL team is structured, I mean, there's no, there's no, pre- I mean, there's pressures, but it's not to succeed like right now. It, it's, it's all long term. It's keeping people alive. It's, how, you know, how do you, how do you mesh that in, in the pressure, pressure filled world of hockey where, you know, the GM's job is on the line within 10 minutes of being hired. Well, look, that seems to go with the territory, but it, I don't think it changes 
how you build a foundation around structure, decision-making, process, um, you know, how you build a daily training environment for the players where their expectations are increased. And, mm-hmm. you know, the one thing about hockey players is that the best hockey players in the world, the ones that play in the NHL are ones that absolutely love playing hockey. They've loved playing hockey their whole lives. Right. Those people then got opportunity. Now, however that opportunity came, whether it was in a small town and the rink being open 24-7 and available for play or from a larger city with multiple arenas, you know, if if you have the desire and you create the opportunity um, and you love the game, that's when greatness emerges. Right. And that doesn't change when these guys get to the NHL. If you give them enhanced opportunity, if you make it available, and you make sure they still love coming to the rink and playing, you're going to get the best out of them. And there are times where the best might not be good enough, and that's just the harsh reality of a highly competitive environment. But um, when you have the right blend, and, and we saw that happen, even though we made lots of mistakes in the human performance side of things, we were the players knew they were getting the best we could give them. Um, given the timing and information we had and that we were willing to try and experiment with how you get better, what you need to do to get better. And um, we saw it emerge. Players loved the game. They embraced the opportunity to be the best they could possibly be. Um, They were confident in the coaching staff and their daily training environment was one where they really liked being there. Yeah. So, you, you know, you, if you, even though you're right, the pressure to win is you know, the results are always the bottom line. Yeah. You don't get results unless you build in these other foundational pieces that people will come to rely upon. And I don't think you can get sustainable excellence unless you absolutely have those ingredients. And, you know, the NHL now is built on you're successful for two or three years and then you're, you know, not very good for 10 years. And there's got to be a way to break out of that cycle um, using technology and advanced thinking and advanced decision-making, I think. So you, you don't think that is necessarily the way the cycle has to exist in a cap system, the the window or however we no. want to call it? No, no, I don't think it has to exist that way because, you know, if you're constantly getting the best performance you can out of every player, you will go through downturns, but they don't have to be downturns that exist for five, six, seven, eight years or longer, even in some cases. Right. And, um, you know, when you see teams that select in the top five players or six players for years and years in a row and don't seem to make any advancement, there's something else wrong. Yeah. Right. Every, everyone identifies who the top 10 players are and it may change. There may be four great players and six really good players coming out of every draft. Yeah. But if you're consistently picking in the top eight or 10 and not changing your result at all over an extended period of time, then clearly there's something else wrong because they may not be, as good as you actually hope them to be, but if the environment's correct, they're going to be the best they can be. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I think, yeah, there are ways to avoid it, but it requires a real commitment and alignment throughout the organization to put those processes and put that environment in place. So I, I like the concept of these are these elite athletes have gotten where they are because they take advantage of every opportunity given to them because i i believe that for the most part do you what what did you find the that you did in vancouver maybe that other teams weren't doing uh, that kind of maximized that that the players really were excited to tap into well i think um there are a number of things that we did in conjunction but i think the one thing that that and it was because players wore uh, wearable sleep bands to, you know, give us a baseline data reading over time and the and media guys saw them and inquired about them. So it became a, a focal point. But when we took over the Canucks, uh, 
the road record for the team was abysmal. It was mm-hmm. horrible. And we realized that if, if we didn't improve our road record, everything else we did really wasn't going to matter a whole lot. You know, we'd be a struggling uh, team that may or may not make the playoffs, um, but certainly wouldn't be an elite level team. Right. So we brought in some consultants to develop um, a complete fatigue management plan, travel plan. And uh, part of that meant that we had to change the way the team had historically traveled, um, the nights they historically traveled, the way we historically traveled. And we had to get the players to buy into that because when you, you know, when you change a very uh, sort of set routine, uh, it can become challenging, right? And questions are asked, why would we be doing that? So the first thing we did was educate everybody about why we were doing this. And we said, okay, if it keeps you healthier, you're going to be more productive. Uh If you're more productive, you're going to have a longer playing career. And if you have a longer playing career, you have a chance to make exponentially more money. Are you interested in that? (laughs) And they were all interested in that. And then we said, okay, so here's our expectations. And they all bought into it because they thought it was going to make them better. It was going to extend their career. Our team would be better and they were going to make more money. Yeah. And, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find if, if you found someone who said, Hey, I'm not interested in that stuff, then they're really not interested in playing on your team. Right. Did you, I mean, as you're approaching players with kind of these progressive ideas in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, this guy's not going to do it. I, you know, this, he's not, he's, it's just not going to be a fit. Like, can you identify those players pretty quickly? Oh yeah. It's, I mean, everything, the more science you layer on top of this, the more evaluation you get and uh, the more willingness to be a part of something bigger, um, the willingness to, to maybe take less money in a cap system in order to play in this environment, because you're going to get extended years on your career and, um, you know, absent some sort of catastrophic injury, but, you know, your enjoyment of the game, your your financial opportunity, and your personal opportunity to be a better player are all enhanced. So if someone's unwilling to do that, it emerges immediately, and you know it immediately. Yeah. And, um, and so consequently, you, you don't want those guys around. And we had a, you know, we were lucky. We had, we had, really good leaders, but they were young players at the time that hadn't been in the leadership role primarily. And, um, we were able to create a bond with those guys where, you know, we basically gave the, the, the locker room to them. We yeah. said, Look, this is your place. This is your house. You need to control it. You need to have the guts and the perseverance and the confidence to make sure that this is running properly. We can take care of everything else, but this is your space and you need to make sure that your space is run correctly like a championship team. And they, they did that. They took those, yeah. those tough uh, <laughs> situations at times on. And, um, and they were very open with us when they thought someone was struggling fitting in, but they really worked hard with any player coming onto the team or into the team to tell them what the culture was and give them their opportunity to learn the culture. And it was only after, and this was rare, someone just simply refused. And, you know, for the betterment of the team, they as a group would make us aware of it and we would do our best to uh, find a replacement that was more willing to be part of something. Um. And the, I mean, in the results, I, I think people have already forgotten just how good, like at the peak, how good those teams were. Like they would just win games. I remember talking to Ryan Kessler about it at one point. It was like, they were like, hey, let's just rattle off 15 straight wins and they would just do it. And it it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was, <laughs> you know, a lot of good things happened. Um, but without the right people, none of it happens. You have to have, um, a really solid cohesive group of players you need a, a solid coaching staff yeah that work and work and work that are aligned with your vision about how to play 
you need to be consistent all the time. And so then again, you know, to be consistent, you need to have your energy levels at the highest possible point in every game you play. And if you strive for that level of elite consistency in your play, you need to make sure everyone's as healthy and as energized as they can possibly be. And when the players figured out how much better they felt by us changing certain things, they just embraced it. Like there was no pushback. There was nothing there. Was, yeah. And, and, um, and they also saw results. I mean, individually they had the best seasons they've ever had before or after. And, um, as a team, they had the best results they ever had. Let me just interrupt this conversation with Mike for an offer from our friends at Calm that actually ties in really well with what Mike did with the Vancouver Canucks. Because if you remember, they were really into mental fitness and managing sleep and tracking and monitoring all of that stuff that went outside of physical fitness. And Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation. And, And the folks there have teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. LeBron and Calm know that your mind is like any other muscle in your body, and Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, have less stress, and perform at your best. For LeBron James, sleep is an important part of his mental fitness routine. And for a limited, excuse me, a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron in using Calm with a 40% discount to an annual membership at calm.com slash full60. Unlock content to help you focus ease stress, and sleep better. It sounds awesome, Um, especially someone who has five kids in their house. Get started at calm.com slash full60. That's calm.com slash full60 to get 40% off. Do you think about 2011, that that final lot? Like, do you? That's the best Uh, final I've ever covered. It was, um, I mean. Well, you know, there was a lot of... um, there were a lot of moving parts and for being in the role of president and GM for the first time in that, in that type of, in that situation was a real learning opportunity. You know, we, we learned a a lot about how to manage certain aspects of, of uh, that level of participation Mm -hmm. that I hadn't anticipated. You know, the, 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 you know, the effect of the media, um, the, the way certain people operated and how distracting they could be or attempted to be if you let them. And there were times we let them and it was a mistake. Um, we, uh, you know, we had some injuries, uh, particularly in the last two rounds of the playoffs that were extraordinarily difficult to overcome. You know, when you, take Dan Hamus out of your lineup and Alex Edler's injured and suddenly you're and Aaron Rome gets suspended. Mm-hmm. You know, you lose three highly effective left-handed shot defense. Yeah. And it's, it's virtually impossible to overcome that unless you change your style of play and, and reduce it to one goal games and try and survive. And, yeah. you know, maybe get lucky or, or maybe have someone make a, just an extraordinarily great play. So, yeah, we played the whole season knowing that we could outscore every opponent we played. Like, we just yeah. had that level of confidence that we could go, and once we got our opportunities, we could outscore anybody because we had, you know, we had, uh, we had the ability to score throughout our entire lineup. Um, you know, there wasn't any player that couldn't score on our team given the opportunity. We had great puck moving defensemen who could contribute offensively throughout our lineup, and we had great goaltending. So we felt during the regular season that given any game at any particular time, if we had our energy levels correct, if everyone was ready and we were healthy, that we could outscore any team we played. And that's how we built the team. And suddenly you get into this situation where you have to – you know, because of circumstances, you need to amend your style of play dramatically. And, you know, then lots of stuff happened and, you know, don't really want to rehash it all. But, um, you know, as leaders of the team, we, we, we and, th- and this goes back to experience, right? Like, 
if I did this again and we were in the same situation, I would be able to impart that experience to people that hadn't had it and we would react differently and do things differently and our decision-making would be better. And when we be removing the emotion because we've seen it before, as opposed to allowing the emotion to, you know, overwhelm you at times. Uh, it's interesting to hear you say you, you, you learned a lot about kind of competing on that stage at that level. What, what stand, like what uh, challenges did you run into that maybe you didn't foresee, or maybe you only experienced it having gone through it? Well, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, um, I certainly underestimated the effect of, uh, the media pressure on, in those circumstances and, um, really wasn't prepared or really even hadn't thought about it, um, mm. uh, as much as we should have. And, you know, we didn't get particularly great guidance in certain areas about different things involving how to handle the media and the expectations and most particularly the expectations on Roberto and our top players. Like it was, it was, it was extraordinary. And in hindsight, there's some things we should have thought of uh, to do a little differently, but we, we just didn't expect that that would be as play as big a role as it did in, um, in being more of a distraction than anything else. Like it, uh, it, I don't think it affected our players play on the ice, but it certainly affected our approach off the ice. And um, yeah, I would have thought about that a little differently for sure. Um, you know, the travel part, I think we did well, but there are still some things we probably could have done a little bit better. Uh, particularly towards the end of that series, there are a couple things I would have done entirely differently. But yeah, you know, that's what happens. You learn. You right. The only way you learn is to go through it, and or have someone who's been through it who can impart that level of knowledge and help guide you. So I, I'm maybe because I'm in the media, I'm curious about this. But when you talk about the media, just in, in general terms, and the pressure it can create in those moments, like. What it, like that series especially, and I haven't experienced, and I've covered you know a million of these playoff series. That series especially, it seemed like every day there was some crazy story to cover. Like every single day there was some controversy, and I don't know if it was just because the two. I mean, you guys were seen as like the skilled, arrogant team or whatever, and yeah, the Bruins were the Bruins, and it was crazy. It was craziness. Is that is that what you're talking about? That distraction of you know everything was magnified. Yeah, there was that, and there was, um, you know, it was, and it wasn't like we expected everyone to jump on our bandwagon and support us, but we <laughs> certainly didn't. We just certainly didn't expect everyone to be putting bombs in front of us, you know. Yeah. And media wise, like you mean? The, yeah, like the, yeah. the, and and the players in particular got the feeling that a lot of people in the media thought that they didn't deserve to be there. Hmm. Like they didn't play the right way. Uh, they weren't tough enough. They didn't fight enough. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. And our guys were like, wow, you know, we're going to win every major award in this league. And we've had the best record by far and we don't deserve to be here. Hmm. And they had, you know, we all struggled with that. Um, with that idea that, everything you had done and everything you had worked towards for a significant period of time didn't really matter. And, yeah. uh, and that was, that was, and, and it, it crept into every question. Like every time Roberto was asked something or Kevin Bieksa, who's a great spokesperson, the Daniel and Henrik who show up at everything. Um, yeah. you could see that they were just getting worn down with this idea that, you know, you guys, you shouldn't be here. And I think we did as well. And we, we allowed that to become uh, a distraction. We shouldn't have. It's, it's not the media's fault for doing that. I mean, they're chasing stories. They're trying to create something. They're, they're um, doing their jobs. And we allowed that to become a, perhaps a greater influence than we ever should have. Mm. It's interesting because when I look at how you were – as a team 
I would say, built and played, it, it wasn't all that dissimilar from, uh, you know, I'm in Detroit, so maybe it's, this is painting it, but a Red Wings team of the same era, right? It was skilled. It, like, I don't think anyone thought those, like, those weren't fighting, scrappy teams in Detroit that were winning. They were just highly skilled, and they were going to outscore you, and they were going to go on the power play and beat you if you did something stupid. Why do you think Vancouver was looked at differently, if you believe that, like through a different lens versus maybe the high-skilled contemporary? Uh, because we're we're a Canadian team, mm. and you know the the uh, you know there there's a direct <laughs> there there was I'm not sure if it still remains, but there was a dramatic difference in how hockey was is perceived in Canada versus the rest of the world, and okay. how it should be played, and and uh, and the Canadians are the toughest hockey players in the world, and that's the way the game should be played, and you know. Um, if you can't beat them in the alley, you can't beat them on the ice. It, there's there's decades of, right. of that that type of sentiment, and and uh, you know there were lots of people on um, that had big platforms that espoused that sentiment, you know, and and said things like that uh, very publicly. And um, the remarkable thing is they all really loved the way the team played because it was exciting and there was always good play, like exceptional play. Right, um, right. Daniel and Henrik and, and Alex Burroughs and, you know, Christian Erhoff emerges as one of the top offensive defensemen in the league for that period of time. Yeah. Um, you know, Sammy Sallow was just a great, great hockey player, low key, wouldn't say anything, but just a super highly skilled great hockey player yeah and um you know and it was often troubling for us when those things got lost and all this other stuff but had zero relevance you know right whether someone wore a visor or not like are you <laughs> kidding um gosh i forgot about all that so, yeah so and and you know and there were media people who openly referred to the sedines as sisters yeah like you know, they, they were the best players in the league that year. And that's how they got referred to by certain media people. And, you know, yeah, I didn't handle that correctly. None of us handled that correctly because we thought, okay, if you're this good on the ice and you're this courageous and you never miss games, you're never hurt, you're the best players in the league, why isn't that the story? Right. Yeah. Why, why isn't that? The only time in professional sports history two twin bro- twin brothers have achieved this level of excellence in any sport isn't that a story? Hmm. And yeah, instead we were confronted with um, lots of other stuff and didn't anticipate it. Should have and should have ignored it a lot better. Didn't and um, you know next time around. I wouldn't even wouldn't even give it a consideration, not even a thought, and stay focused on the task at hand and how to win the final game. And um, we would bring so in there's, you know, there's almost crisis manage. I would bring in almost crisis management media people to mm-hmm. go through all of the possible scenarios that may emerge, as untasteful as they may be, or as flattering as they may be, and make sure that everyone has them in perspective. And everyone in the hockey operations department understands the motivation, is better educated, better prepared for that line of questioning, uh, understands the motivation behind it, which I think is critical. And then you can compart, carp, uh, you can just put it away right. and, and not even give it a second thought. It doesn't affect you at all. You knew it was coming. Here it is. Have a laugh about it. Move on. And, um, so I think preparation going into those types of situations, like anything, you know, it's just a, another layer of stress or another uh, layer of adversity that you need to learn how to deal with effectively and make sure it doesn't affect your performance. Do you think that mentality still exists? Like you, like you, you couldn't go on a platform and call the Sedin twins, the Sedin sisters now without losing your job. Do you think that, those kind of same pressures to play that way still exist in Canada? Oh, I think there's always going to be an underlying current. Um, you know, it just doesn't disappear overnight, but mm-hmm. there there's most definitely, um, 
you, know, you look at young players and how they're being coached and the emphasis on skill. Uh, you look at how great the, you know, the emerging players are in this league now. It's, it's, it's all skill and it's all speed and it's all, um, it's remarkable to watch it. So I think that over time, yeah, I, I still think there needs to be a blend of physical play, uh, proper physical play in the league that, um, that um, should never go away. But I, I think that the extra stuff, like the stuff that's, that's clearly racist and, and is, is only said to try and disaffect someone personally. I think those days are dated. And they're mm-hmm. rapidly coming to an end, which is good. And um, you know, you're seeing it all over the world that uh, right. that that type of behavior will no longer be tolerated. Um, and and personal vicious attacks, particularly in the world of sports, are you know if someone's done something really bad, they deserve it and they should get it. But just because they're from another country or they don't speak the language as well as you hope they would or whatever. There's no room for that any longer. Yeah, I agree. All right. Wrapping up. I always like to ask people this, but I know I, I've, I've read that, that the book, how the best leaders lead by Brian Tracy has been impactful for you. Why, why is that true? And, and what, what impact has it had on how in your approach as a leader? Well, there's, you know, leadership is, um, there's lots and lots and lots of material and opinions and a lot of it really exceptional about how, how you develop leadership and how you, how you act as a leader. And um, I think the most impactful thing is, is that, you know, we, and we used to do this, we used to ask this question all the time. Is this the right thing to do? And, you know, there's, there's, a lot of interpersonal relationships in the world of sports. I mean, there are players that you just like, you like their families, you like their, their makeup, you like uh, the way they handle themselves. And there are times where you have to make really difficult decisions. And what I always used to do is say, is this the right thing for us to be doing? And that doesn't mean whether the guy got 12 goals or 14 goals. It means what's his impact on the team in the community and now let's look at his impact on the ice. And I'd like to think that, um, you know, that's a really good guideline for a high-functioning organization that's, that's, um, that cares about people, that wants the best for them, and, um, and can move, move along in a modern day, modern age. And, you know, when players left the Canucks for more money, um, I always say, I would always say to them, I'm so glad for you. I'm glad that you're, you know, it, like it's money's important and I get it and we can't possibly do this, but I'm glad, glad that we played a role in you being able to achieve this for yourself and your family. And we didn't begrudge any player ever who left the Canucks, who built on their experience there and had an opportunity to make, you know, extraordinary amounts of money that they, we just couldn't afford to pay them in a cap system with a good team at that particular point in time. And you can't blame them. It's, uh, it's part of the business and you just hope that they, they leave with uh, respect for the organization, respect for the people who ran it and, and, um, and their love of the game intact. Well, Mike, thanks for doing this. This was a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. No problem. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Craig. All right. Thanks, Mike. Take care. I want to thank Mike Gillis for joining the podcast. I literally had two pages of notes, like two giant spiral notebook pages of questions that I wanted to get into that that kind of predated his time with the Canucks that we didn't even touch. Like this was a conversation that I, that kind of went down its own path, and it was it was fascinating. I'm really glad we went where we went. Um, I could like honestly, like I could talk about that 2011 series for days. Like I would have every single person that played in that series or was a manager or a coach, I would, I would do that. If, if I can do a podcast just in that series, I would do that. I was fascinated by it. It was, it was a lot of fun to cover. Um, exhausting, but fun. 
Um, so thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining the podcast. And also, I do want, if you didn't see it or didn't haven't listened yet, Scott Wheeler was on earlier this week as part of our prospect series and was great. And it was fun to talk to Scott about his um, coverage of the World Junior Championships, which prospects stood out for that, as well as um, some of the prospects that have drafted um, that have been drafted by teams and his team by team rankings that he's been rolling out a, a lot of prospect talks. So if you're into that and you like to hear about who's coming to your NHL team or who is really good at this in this year's draft class, we covered a lot of ground in that. And that's that was a bonus episode, the prospect series posted this week. So definitely go and check that out if you haven't. All right. Thanks again to Mike for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great week. <laughs>